Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. I'm Ant Sharwood and this week the government has made three appointments to an independent statutory body. My God, that sounds like boring news. That sounds like the least interesting story in the world. Government appoints people to thing. Yeah, that's what governments do. Massive story. What's going on? Well, we are going to tell you why these are long overdue and massively important appointments that constitute a real culture shift in one of the most important bodies in the country, not even lying a little bit. Also this week, guess how much the world would save by switching to green energy? It's a really, really big number. We're going to torment you for a little while, make you listen to find out what that number is. Now, also this week, we've got a new survey that's come out, and we're going to share that with you. It talks about what people really think of the threat of climate change. The numbers of people who think they're affected are astonishingly high. Uh, we're also talking about toxic sludge in our oldest national park. Not good news there, but there is some good news. We're talking about the first mainland Australian state that's going to run on renewables. Of course, Tasmania is already there, but there's another state that's joining the party. And again, you'll have to wait for that. There's lots more as well on the Green Canary this week. And speaking of energy, someone who is always running very, very high on that, I guess you'd call it renewable natural energy, that would be my co-host, Elfie Scott. How are you there, Elfie? Are you feeling energetic? You say I run on renewable natural energy, but I run mostly on like two-minute noodles. So I'm wondering <laughs> if that is a renewable energy source. I don't uh, know technically. Look, the two-minute noodle uh, plantations, uh, hopefully <laughs> the Amazon there, I'm sure they're, they're, there's something natural in them somewhere. and uh, uh, Somewhere along the line. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows where it came in and where it went out? But um, yeah, I'm feeling good. How's your week been, Ant? Uh, my week's been great. It's birthday week in our family. We have three in a week. So, Whoa, really? Yeah, and I'm last, so no one cares. We get around to my birthday, which is in a couple of days. And so you'll <gasps> forget, well, you you didn't know, but it, it doesn't matter that you didn't know. No one cares. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> that's so exciting, Ant. Well, that's, look, I'll tell you what, I'm much, much more excited than uh, the passing of the years uh, to present this podcast today. So let's rip into it. There is nothing more interesting than green news, bringing it to the people. Uh, we love our audience out there. We thank you all for listening. What's on the plate today, Elfie? Okay, so according to research, the world would save 12 trillion US dollars by switching to green energy. Uh, hang uh, on, Elfie, I'm, I'm going full Dr. Evil here. 12 <laughs> trillion dollars? 12 trillion dollars. <laughs> so basically the researchers were looking at how much would be saved by transitioning to completely net zero energy by 2050. Uh, they looked at projections of the costs of renewable energy and they also looked at the cost of fossil fuels, which by the way, Ant, I didn't realize this, but they've been relatively stable fossil fuel costs for something like a century. Whereas uh, that's, that's when you make the graph really long, because obviously there were all shocks in the 70s and had a bit of an all shock this year really but yes I've seen that graph over time they do not vary much yes exactly but you know what does vary solar and wind power 
you know, haven't been a lot around for as long as fossil fuels, obviously, but on average, they've fallen by about 10% in cost every year. So the researchers were saying exclusively, if you just look at how much this is going to cost the planet, renewable energy is the clear answer, regardless of whether or not you believe in climate change or believe that climate change should be acted upon. I, I believe that the uh, $12 trillion figure does not even factor in uh, the way that climate change is going to hit the global economy. So every disaster that that you know wipes billions off a off a country's uh, GDP or, or it's or however you want to measure it, uh, that's not even factored into it, is it? We're just no. talking about the cost of energy here. Yes, exactly. We're not even talking about the effects of climate change in the slightest and everything that comes with it. So, you know, that's a pretty hefty bill. And I think that it sends a very clear signal of the direction that we should be heading in, even from a purely robotic android, like this is the economical facts of the world sort of perspective. I am going to bookmark this Oxford University study because, you know, I think we've spoken before here on the Green Canary Pod about the fact that climate denialism in the uh, sort of sectors of, for example, the Republican Party in America, uh, where, where it burns most strongly, excuse the pun, um, climate denialism has shifted from we don't believe it to, oh, it's too expensive mm -hmm. or too much of a hassle to do something about. So, you know, as I say, bookmarking this page, because here is a nice little nugget saying, nah, your new tack doesn't work either. There are so many reasons to get on with this change. Yeah, 100%. And actually, now that you mentioned that, Ant, in the research paper that I read of theirs, they were talking about the investment costs that it would take. And they were like, that is nothing. It's a slice off the top compared to how much we're going to be saving. Yeah, right. Well, well done to Oxford University uh, researchers. I believe Oxford University uh, has a reasonable reputation, so I'm inclined <laughs> to, uh, to to take on board anything that comes out of, of that particular institution. Now, let's talk about another little bit of research. Or this this was a survey. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated by this. This um, it's an Ipsos survey, and they uh, well, Ipsos is sort of doing the reporting around it, but it was actually a World Economic Forum survey. And they did a climate survey. They spoke to 23,000 people uh, in 34 countries. What they're trying to find out were how people feel about climate change, specifically how they feel they will be affected by it over the next decade. And uh, wow, some of these numbers are pretty incredible, aren't they? Mm. Uh, over 50% of people, um, or half 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 the people in the 34 countries um, said that, yeah, climate change has already had a severe effect on them where they live. Yeah, totally. It's pretty shocking, actually. And I think that it really just goes to show, much like you were saying before, Ant, talking about climate denialism, I don't think there are a huge amount of climate denialists left because everybody can see this unfolding around them. In a handful of the countries that were surveyed, more than two-thirds of people are saying that they've already been severely impacted by climate change. And on top of this, like you were saying, most people do seem really worried for their futures. So on average, about three quarters of people say they think climate change is going to have a severe impact in their area over the next decade. Yeah, so there's some pretty startling statistics. Um, did they look at Australia specifically, actually? 
Uh, let's have a look. Actually, they did. They did. They did. Um, here's a couple of Aussie stats. Uh, six in 10 Australians expect that climate change will have a severe effect in their area over the next 10 years. Uh, that was roughly on par with the, the global figure. Uh, again, roughly on par around a third of Australians and about a third of people surveyed. Uh, I can't believe this one. A third of people expect to be displaced from their home as a result of climate change in the next 25 years and wow i mean there's just all these all these um stats that as as you say um I'll, I'll tell you where climate denialism you know the remnants the tattered remnants of it i'll tell you where it lives it lives in think tanks um it it, it doesn't live in the real world out here in mm. the real world people are feeling the effects of climate change or strongly fearing the effects of climate change um we didn't want it to get this far. 30 years ago, we we really didn't want it to get this far uh, when it was being discussed a bit theoretically. We wanted uh, people to act on it and accept the science without people out there having to feel the science and feel it almost invariably in an adverse way. Uh, but that's where we are. People are feeling it. Um, if, as they say, politicians always follow the people, you, you just cannot help feeling that, that sad though it is tragic, devastating though it is uh the main momentum has to shift on on the back of results like this yeah yeah absolutely i mean that is a shocking statistic that people that many people think that they're going to have to move from their homes in australia within the next 25 years and globally one in three amazing God. Okay. Well, let's move on to our main story of the week. Uh, this is an overhaul with a climate change body that you alluded to in the beginning of this episode. Yep. And what is happening? What has the government done? And what is a statutory body when it's at home? <laughs> it just means it's a it, it, it's a government body that 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 takes advice from experts. I mean, as I said. Government appoints people to thing ain't normally a story. That's what government does. It has countless <laughs> bodies, you know, the arms of government, the tendrils are, are, are long and curling throughout society. But this ain't no ordinary uh, body. The Climate Change Authority is the body that provides advice to the Australian government on climate change. Uh, it conducts reviews. It undertakes research. It, it, it feeds reports to the government. It expects the government to heed those reports, to say, right, okay, taken your advice let's do something this is not what the climate change authority has basically done for most of its life now it was created elfie uh back in 2012 under the gillard government um abbott and the coalition were elected in 2013 they more or less tried to bin it um they did uh bin the the predecessor of of the climate council which which then went out and became a publicly funded body mm. but they kept the climate change authority um and but they gutted it um they slashed staff they habitually ignored its advice they filled it with people that you can only describe as shills or people who in some cases were were too scared to say what they really knew uh for fear of their job i'm speaking of people within government arms like the csiro and in some to some extent the bureau of meteorology i'm not for a second suggesting there are climate deniers there i'm saying there were people who felt intimidated to report the actual news or the facts to the government then uh, because of possible possible sort of blowback to, to them and their jobs. Sure. Anyway, Elfie, what's going on? You've, you've got the list here. Who are some of the people they have now thrown onto the Climate Change Authority? Okay, so what they have done is they've not actually taken people out of the board. What they've done is put people 
on it. So yeah. it used to be, I think it's six members. Now it is nine. So the additional members include thank Christ, Professor Leslie Hughes, who is a biologist and distinguished academic, Dr. Virginia Marshall, who is a legal researcher who has worked on Indigenous water rights, and Sam Mostyn, who is a businesswoman and sustainability advisor. It really does seem like the Albanese government has noticed finally a government has noticed that perhaps this isn't the most effective and balanced body. Um, but, you know, they've tried to put these experts in. It will be really fascinating to see what happens with the Climate Change Authority now, especially considering that the current chair is still Grant King, who is a former head of Origin Energy and the president of the Business Council of Australia. So they've got additional members there and hopefully the balance is righted somewhat towards science and not so much towards the interests of business and the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, well, I mean, Adam Bant said so. He he said he hopes this is the beginning of the Climate Change Authority actually uh, being about to focus on the science of cutting fossil fuels and fighting the climate crisis. And, you know, I mean, the three appointees that you mentioned are all women. That's that's a good thing for, for, for many, many reasons. But look, I, I want to move to our interview for the week, Elfie. Um, mm. Normally we bring you a fresh interview. That's what you do. I'm talking head about the issue of the week. Look, Believe us, this is not laziness, what we're about to do, but we're about to <laughs> chop up an old interview that we ran here on the Green Canary back in April. Now, there's a really good reason why we're doing this. Um, the interview was with uh, retired Professor David Caroli. Uh, look, his list of achievements is as long as your arm, but, but he's been a contributor to numerous IPCC reports, much, much more. David Caroli was the lone climate scientist sitting on the Climate Change Authority for four years from 2013 to 2017 in the Abbott and then the Turnbull governments. Now, we're going to run six minutes of this interview. Um, it starts at the point at which I asked him, Radio, Tony Abbott takes office. He tries to dismantle as much climate infrastructure as he can, uh, but he keeps the Climate Change Authority with you on it. How did it function? And David Caroli's response to that and, and follow-up questions gives you the most um, incredible insight into how broken this body was, Elfie. We said at the very start of the podcast, why is it interesting that the government has appointed three people to a thing? Who cares? Because this was a broken body that was the most important advice-giving body to government on climate information in Australia. It was rigged. It was totally stuffed in every consider considerable way. It's not going to be that anymore. It's going to be terrific. And let's just go back and see how bad it was. Let's roll our interview from April 22 with David Caroli. Now, one of the things they did on day two of office, I believe, was they abolished the Climate Change Commission um, or the Climate Commission. Um, you know, became, well, it had to start again, start life again as the Climate Council. So it was, it is now crowdfunded or publicly funded uh, rather than government funded. They kept the Climate Change Authority. You soldiered on there as, as you mentioned, the only climate scientist. But in, I think, 2014-15, and this is a really important moment, a bunch of people resigned from that. They just went, look, you're ignoring the targets. We've, we've, we're scientists, we've made these, well, we're experts in various ways, we've made these targets, you've ignored them, you keep ignoring them, we're banging our heads against the wall, there is no point, you stayed on, 
why and what happened next? Yeah, look, that's a, a long story, but I will try to give the very much abridged version. 2014-2015, uh, the Climate Change Authority issued a new report on Australian progress in terms of emission reductions and on what Australia's target should be in 2030 for essentially Australia's fair contributions to emission reductions. The recommendation was essentially much, much stronger emission reductions, 40 to 60% emission reductions in Australia by 2030, much greater than the federal government was recommending at the time. Federal government, basically Abbott government and then Turnbull government, basically completely ignored the recommendations from the Climate Change Authority. A number of people resigned, but I continued on because I felt it was important to provide the information to the Australian Parliament and the Australian people. Given the resignations, a whole bunch, essentially five new members of the Climate Change Authority were appointed. They were appointed by the new government. They stacked the group. They had the majority votes on the Climate Change Authority. And for the first time ever, a report was put out that completely ignored the previous recommendations from the Climate Change Authority, basically said, we're going to completely accept the recommended targets from the Australian government. Despite my concerns about this, despite other people's concerns, we eventually published a minority report that basically said the new membership from the Climate Change Authority has changed everything. And in practice, all their recommendations aren't worth the paper that they're printed on. So you went full Tom Cruise mode. I love that. And I refer to the 2002 film Minority Report, which starred Cruise, but was actually a uh, film version of a uh, novella by Philip K. Dick, who uh, wrote the original thing that they turned into Blade Runner. So um, you went full Blade Runner. You went, you went full Harrison Ford. I could, I mean... What you actually did was you went full David Paroli, didn't you? Because your conscience told you that, look, if they're going to stack it with people who are effectively shills for, for, for their own government, um, I'm going to I'm going to strike back and say, no, nope, this report is junk. You published a minority report. Let's move on. What, hap what happened next? Uh, look, I survived my term, I won't call it sentence, but term of five years <laughs> in the Climate Change Authority, um, finished in 2017. And since that time, the Climate Change Authority, this body that still exists, and I should point out, let's go back a little bit, it still exists because that Australian hero, in inverted commas, Clive Palmer, got a photo shoot joint with Al Gore and decided to stop the Australian government dissolving the Climate Change Authority. I'm not sure that that's the only one thing that I think Clive Palmer is, uh, <laughs> how would I say, can be celebrated for. Um, but look, it's critically important to recognise the Climate Change Authority still exists, still has a legal responsibility to provide independent, in inverted commas, independent advice on targets and Australian greenhouse gas emission reductions, all their reports have only ever agreed with the federal government's targets. They're so, a waste of paper. Right, so you've just made it very clear, but but I guess the news journalist in me, you know, uh, tick, 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 60 minutes. So what you're saying is they're not independent. 
that's correct. They were appointed by the new government. They're not independent. And they haven't had a climate scientist on that group, the Climate Change Authority, since I left. They say they're getting independent advice from the Bureau of Meteorology and from CSIRO, but they're both funded by the current Australian government, very nervous about funding cuts by the government in terms of climate change science. And so they're beholden to the government for their funding and they will not agree. So they will not disagree with anything the federal government says in terms of actions on climate change. You are effectively alleging deliberate obfuscation by the government, which has uh, led Australia for the last nine years of, of climate science. Uh, and there's a load, yeah, there's a load of evidence in this Climate Council report, in my own experience, that the federal government, CSIRO, and the Bureau of Meteorology are trying to in some sense maintain the status quo and are not keen for stronger action on climate change in terms of emission reduction because the government doesn't want to do it. Yeah, wow. So I actually loved that interview when we first ran it, and But again, it's really important to revisit because he really doesn't back away from saying what he thinks about the Climate Change Authority in any yeah. way, shape or form. He says there was purposeful obfuscation of the facts <laughs> and science within that body. And yeah, I feel like his anger, I don't want to say anger, anger is probably a harsh word and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I feel like his feelings towards the body are fairly palpable in that interview. Yeah, look, I don't know, David, personally, but I have interviewed him twice. I don't think he'd mind you saying anger. He might even not uh, object to you saying raging hot fury because, you know, he was he was pretty annoyed with with what went on there. But, you know, as he said, I'd, I'd forgotten that after he left, first of all, he was the only climate scientist there for four years not being listened to. And after he left, they didn't even have a climate scientist. Well, mm. you know, now we, we, we've got Professor Leslie Hughes and she is just one of the most absolutely respected people in the field. So totally different. Culture change. This is good. Yeah, absolutely. And I will be really hoping that maybe they do what's written on the tin from now on. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Let's move into our mulch for the week. And you're our resident weather expert. Tell me about La Nina and what we know about it. Uh, La Nina is back. I'm so sorry, everybody. And oh, it sucks. <laughs> it's, so this, this is sort of weather news rather than, you know, hard climate green news, but it's in the realm and it affects everybody, especially those of us who live on the east coast of Australia. Although, actually, if you look back, if you get really nerd-like, as I did this week, and uh, go back to the dual La Ninas of 2010 and 11, they were wet almost Australia-wide. They were wet in the outback, they were wet in Western Australia, and they were, of course, wet in Queensland and New South Wales. That was when we had the Grantham floods and some of the really bad events in, in uh, Queensland. Um, of course, as we know, in New South Wales has been the centre point of the flooding, though there's been bad flooding elsewhere, especially in Queensland in the last two years. So I don't know if we're looking at a third year of floods over summer, over the spring, summer, early autumn period. Perhaps it'll only be the first part of that period because uh, there is word that this La Nina is going to peter out a little sooner than the other two. Um, they can never quite know, but they do look at sort of ocean circulations and various things that fuel these events. And it's on. And we do know that when those floods come or those heavy rains, um, they are likely to be more severe. They are likely, uh, more likely to happen in the first place uh, because of the added 
uh, influence of a warmer atmosphere, which holds and transfers more moisture. Mm, yeah, right. Well, I really hope this doesn't ruin my beach holiday plans and <laughs> I would be really pissed off, but we all find out. And like you said, fingers crossed, it's going to be less severe. La Nina, we are sick of you. All what, right. What is a beach holiday? I just can't remember them anymore. I, I, all, all I remember is sitting indoors playing Monopoly and losing. I'm so bad also, at Monopoly. Can I just say that even before we had this La Nina period, we had the black summer. So yeah. every beach was ashy and clouded over. We haven't had a good summer for four years. We want summer back. I'm going to march in the streets. I, I'm going to block the Harbour Tunnel demanding <laughs> summer back. <laughs> oh, no, you're going to get arrested, aren't you? <laughs> All right. Let's talk about black sludge, shall we? because that is the word of the day from the Royal National Park, and this story is shit. Okay, tell me what's happening over there. Uh, look, this is personal, Elfie, because I walk the National Park, the Royal National Park, most weekends. Um, mm. Fun fact, do you know it's Australia's oldest national park and the world's second oldest national park after Yellowstone in America? Oh, um, there you go. Now hit me with the facts. What's going on? News. Can I give you the second fun fact? Or no, is that too- tell me the fun fact afterwards. Give me the news headline. Well, look, the news is that there's a, a mine owned by Peabody Energy and it's pouring black sludge into the Royal National Park. Look, there's a lot of coal mines. Obviously, um, a lot of the uh, areas down between the Royal National Park and Wollongong, if you know the geography south of Sydney, there is a lot of coal in that area. And I guess coal and nature have coexisted for, for over 100 years um, in, in, in that area. It's not ideal. It is still a fact of life. But Peabody's in trouble. Um, they have appear to have, you know, let let some sort of mine gunk. I think gunk is the uh, technical <laughs> word. That is what they say in all of the papers written about this, actually. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's actually some, some amazing footage out there that, that we'll share in the newsletter this week of just black sludgy water and I swim in the creeks there and they are pristine or most of them are anyway. So, so it's, it's really, really bad. Peabody have blamed it on the rain. Yeah. It's been so far Sydney's second wettest year on record, but I'm sorry, there have been dry spells as well. And as you pointed out, good get by you. Um, that, that it hasn't been that wet in the last two months. It's just been sort of regular rainfall. So mm, not quite buying that excuse. Yeah, totally. And they've already been in trouble this year for a couple of different violations. Uh, They've got a $15,000 fine earlier this year for polluting a waterway in Helensburg. And last month, even, they had an overflow event that apparently polluted a creek. I think it's interesting, Anne, because... What our podcast generally focuses on is climate change, right? We're always talking about emissions and like the wider scale global effects of fossil fuel industry. And then you get a story like this and it almost feels vintage in a way. You're like, oh, this is like an 80s issue. You know what I mean? They're just like pouring shit into the environment and it looks terrible and it's obviously damaging. You make a great point. You make a fantastic point. I remember growing up, you know, You'd read about the air in Los Angeles. You'd read about the local area effects of dirty industries. And as you say, we always talk big picture, but uh, yeah, they're dirty. It's as you say, they're dirty on a local level. Um, not always, but, but, but often, and especially when mistakes happen and such a good reason once again, to get into other industries and 
looks like one state in Australia is about to do that or is doing that, but is about to hit a milestone, doesn't it, Elfie? Yeah, South Australia. It is on its way to becoming the first grid of its size to operate solely on renewables within the next few years, which is really fantastic news. Um, South Australia is already a world-leading state with the amount of wind and solar in its grid, uh, which averages out uh, to about 65% of its total output. Uh, but it also regularly surpasses that and surpasses 100% of the state's energy demand. Um, but even when it's been producing electricity in the past and producing more electricity than it actually needs, South Australia have these gas generators built into its grid. And now the projection is that the generators are going to keep dropping off. And by about 2025, when the state is theoretically linked up to New South Wales, no more gas generators. It's going to be a fully renewable state. Which is absolutely amazing and well done, South Australia. And, you know, whenever you mention energy in South Australia, your mind always drifts back to that event a few years ago when a freak windstorm actually oh, pushed gosh. on the massive transition uh, transmission towers over and, uh, you know, a whole lot of people uh, stupidly said, oh, this proves that, you know, renewables don't work. <laughs> yeah, nah, mostly nah, 100% nah. <laughs> is that your official opinion? <laughs> yeah, nah, leading leaning heavily towards nah. It was it was old it was old infrastructure's fault and old infrastructure is making way. So well down South Australia, obviously Tasmania, as we said at the start, is 100% renewable. I think it's almost 200% renewable. They can export lots of renewable energy. So good luck to them. They've got all their hydro, of course, but mm. it's great to see a dry land state uh, like SA doing its part with solar and wind. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And I think that is all we have time for today. So thank you, everybody, for joining us again for another week of our Green News. As always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. Thank you, Elfie. And I'd just like to give you my regular shout out, everybody, um, with a twist. Uh, first of all, just email hello at thegreencanary.co and you will get Australia's chirpiest uh, green news uh, straight into your inbox. Cannot wait to share the pick of the week this week. Just unbelievable. Art drawn by an animal uh, with an environmental twist. That's all I'm saying for now. Um, so that's our newsletter. Please follow us on Twitter. Uh, we are at Green Canary Pod, and please say hello to us on Insta, where we are at Green Canary Media. And I also this week want to remind you to rate our show. We want you to get onto your favourite podcast platform and say, I give five stars to the Green Canary because they bring me my environmental weekly news fix in an entertaining way. Uh, as <laughs> you don't person. have to say it in exactly those words. No, those the are the and words. Won't, won't hold you hostage. No, that is the script. That is precisely <laughs> the script. And and five is the number of stars you shall give as well. No, in, in all seriousness, as Elfie said, please just get on there, rate us, tell your mates about us, and uh, that will help your pod be uh, shared your favourite pod. Of course, your favourite pod. Be shared as widely as possible. <laughs> All right, brilliant. Well, we will see you next week. And in the meantime, we'll see you on Instagram and Twitter. But thanks so much for joining us. Bye. Bye.